From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Mullady is in the house. If you've got a question today, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one 205 2712985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you are outside of North America at 205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at ewtn.com, or you can text your question, text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you are watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Thursday today from the friendly confines in Portland, Oregon, Father Brian Mullady. How are you? Hi, how are you? Terrific, thanks. You're comfortable. You're you're nestled in with your favorite friends, your books. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's there there are kind of what I would call uh, cardinal topics on 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 right. apologetics programs, and certainly one of those topics is the proper and right understanding of how. A sinful, broken human can be justified in the eyes of an all-holy God. Right. And I wanted to do it more than just as apologetic exercise. I wanted to do it as an expression of the uh, effects of grace in our soul. The uh, cause of grace, of course, is God alone, and Christ is an extension of that because he is the word of God in flesh. The nature of grace, as we've discussed, I think, in other programs, is to elevate us to experience a union of friendship with the Trinity. Well, what are the effects of this elevation? Well, there are two. This week I want to talk about justification. What does the term justification mean? Well, it doesn't mean the virtue of justice. The virtue of justice is present in our wills, and it has to do with the constant and perpetual will to give to another their due. Justification, rather, refers to an inner disorder, an inner disorder that was causing the original sin when we lost grace, and then our intellect became darkened, and our wills, well, we liked, we didn't really like doing good anymore. We sort of had an inclination to like tormenting people and then also our passions 
all began to go in various directions, so we couldn't get them together. And of course, the ultimate sign of the lack of justification is the experience of a painful death. Now, I want to talk briefly about this today. I think I'll need two programs to really expose it completely, because it's a vast topic. But about the justification of an adult, obviously when we're children, we don't make acts of the will and things like that where we have to be turned to God personally because we don't have a moral life yet when we're baptized in the baptismal font. But in the case of an adult, God works in us. And he works in us in order to bring us to turn from a condition in which we prefer materialism to him. This turning is a result of God's action alone. And it's described in the scripture as justification because it has to do with the righteousness within in which slowly but surely once we receive grace, once we accept conversion, this turning begins to affect all the powers of our soul to take them out of being disordered and put them back into order. So, in a sense, the Protestants were correct. No one merits justification except Jesus. But no human being can merit justification because it's the divine condition in which God himself motivates the soul. Now, the problem with this is we look on it from time as us embracing the forgiveness of sins and then God in eternity forgives us our sins. But the actual order is the opposite, the, 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 deep, the deepest explanation of the order because God is instilling grace and this is the primary cause by which we reject sin. You can see this, for example, in the baptismal ritual because we're asked questions about whether we reject Satan and all his works and all his pomps. And then we're asked positive questions of whether we believe in God and things like that. Now, because it's a divinely induced condition, it can occur instantaneously because it's a matter of the will. Most natural growth in a plant, let's say, takes time for the plant to take on the fullness of what is involved in being a plant. But in justification, becoming fully a human being, which is to say being able to go to heaven, is something that God doesn't need to work through in an ordinary natural way. Now, of course, there were ways or people who experienced justification in that way. Jesus, as you recall, prepared the apostles to embrace justification over a three-year period of time. On the other hand, with St. Augustine, although he did have a rather long preparation as far as not believing, uh, the instant he chose to believe, then it occurred instantaneously. And I suppose the classic example is that of St. Paul, who was against justification, breathing out threats, confirming the act of killing Stephen, and yet almost in one instant, received justification. Now, the important thing is, apologetically, is to notice that though we don't merit justification, and though faith is involved in justification, 
faith is not the end of justification. Because since our intellect and our wills have to be filled with God, it doesn't suffice for us to just say that we believe or accept Jesus as our personal Savior in an act of our intelligence. St. Paul is very clear that justification consists in faith, but he means as a beginning. Luther, as you know, added the word alone to that. That's not correct. Because it begins in our intelligence, like all acts that are human, it has to end in love and in our wills. So equally important to faith when it comes to justification is charity. And that means that works, the works of charity, are essential to experience justification in its fullness. I don't believe any, any Christian would ever deny that good works are necessary. But the question is where it fits in. And of course the good works here would include the good works of the sacraments, which are actually good works of Christ. So the Catholic Church maintains that in order for faith to be living, so remember faith without works is dead according to the scriptures, in order for faith to be living or fully formed, it has to be completed in charity. Now, another point which is very important is the idea that as regards the manner of working, elevating us to heaven is probably um, the greatest of God's works. But as regards what work is done, because when God gives us this gift, this true change, not just overlooking our sins, but inviting us to sanctify and renew our interior selves. The final purpose of this is that we will go to heaven. And as a result, there's a wonderful statement in both St. Augustine and St. Thomas, which is also quoted in the Catechism, that the justification of sinners because of the work done is a work of God which is greater. One sinner, now we're talking about one sinner, which is greater than all the works of heaven and earth combined together. So this is a stupendous statement. It's something that should entice us with our dignity and lead us to understand that being righteously fully human demands this divine union. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's one 833 288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, Michael McCall, our producer, is such a legalistic, by-the-book, slave-to-the-clock kind of a person. It doesn't matter if you're having a perfectly pleasant conversation with someone. He's going to dive in and cut you off with the music. 
Um, through redemptive Catholic journalism, talking about redemption and justification, EWTN News helps advance the gospel and teachings of the Catholic Church. Get our trusted Catholic news right to your email inbox. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Phone lines are wide open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And Father Brian Mullady and I just learned moments ago that we have the same birthday. Right. Saturday, October 16th this year. I will be 59. Father Milady will be 52. <laughs> if only it were true. <laughs> <laughs> Got an email here from James, and he says, Since the Catholic Church is so rigorously governed by supposed canon law, wouldn't one expect to see references to it in Scripture? We don't, so why not? Isn't it just the Catholic equivalent of the Jewish Talmud? Well, we don't see references to it in the scripture because it's not divine law for the most part. Uh, there are parts of canon law that are divine law. For example, uh, the matter and form of the Eucharist, what you have to use in order to consecrate the sacrament of the Eucharist. It has to be wheat and flour uh, in some, on some level, and uh, the, the content of the wine in order to support the change. And the words have to be of a certain character in order to affect the change. But, you know, canon law is just church law, and mostly it's human law, except for those areas that have to do with divine law. And the reason we have canon law is because we have on this earth a human side to this divine society of the church which we belong to. In fact, it wasn't even codified as a system of law until 1918. And the reason was because, of course, various customs grew up in various places and there were various decisions made about how things should be done. And they finally decided to put them all together in a book and um, you know, adjust them so that they all made sense for the whole church. But we don't find it in the scripture because it's not divinely revealed except for certain parts of it. Like the fact that only men can be ordained, for instance. That would be something divinely revealed. But most of the rest is just an attempt by the church to govern itself in this world. So um, the Talmud, well, I, my understanding of the Talmud is it's a collection of customs. And uh, I guess what, sort of... Um, normal ways in which the rabbis decided things. But this is a bit more than that. It's not a commentary on Holy Scripture. It's rather an attempt to present a coherent body of legal uh, norms for the human part of the society of the church as it exists here in this world. And so most of it need not be in Scripture nor of a divinely inspired character. Um, so that's, that's why. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Got a great phone call here from Jeff in Las Vegas, Nevada, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jeff, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Welcome to the program. Go, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, I have a question. I don't know if it's two parts or a couple of questions. It's uh, I'm an Anglican priest. And I'm investigating Roman Catholicism and wanting to find out about engaging in RCIA. 
and uh, possibilities where that's concerned. And then where Mary and Marian theology is concerned, you know, my my concerns have gone to praying, you know, to Mary, as it were, um, not, and just kind of taking on the uh, posture of meditation, meditation to Mary, about Mary, where Mary, scriptures of Mary are concerned, um, Mary's, what, you know, what she means to us, what scripture teaches her about us, that type of thing. And so I've sort of began my process using that approach. Is that, a, is that an okay approach, number one? And then number two, about the... And I'm interested more, I'm not interested in re-priesting so much as I am interested in just the Church. All right. Uh, yes, well, that's a valid process. Of course it's a valid process. Uh, what I would suggest to you is uh, certain things about our theology of Our Lady. Um, first of all, that I, you had evangelicals ask me about this. And I say, look, it says in Luke, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. That's basically all we're doing in Marian devotion. I mean, that's the bottom line of Marian devotion. She's not a substitute for God. And uh, I, I remember I, I gave a conference in an Anglican church in Galveston, Texas, many years ago now on the Catholic idea of Mary. And, you know, people hear what they want to hear in a way a lot. So uh, I asked if there were any questions. So this man raised his hand because I had given what I thought was a very deep and very beautiful explanation of how you could be a virgin and a mother at the same time and wife. And he said, um, so then you think marriage is evil, huh? And I, I kind of did a double take and I said, did anyone in this room hear me say marriage? Who, who, who heard me say marriage was evil? No, no. The whole thing of Mary and devotion is that she's the glory of our race, the honor of our people. Remember, Wordsworth said she was our Tate and nature's solitary boast, and she's the first Christian. So to think about the life of Our Lady as the most important and deepest and most loving Christian, that helps you to understand a great deal about what Christianity is about and our own religious options as far as our relationship to Christ. Also, it's kind of sad that the Anglicans, some, of course, have a very high church idea of Mary. But remember, they used to call England Mary's dowry <laughs> before the Reformation. I mean, the, the, the devotion to Our Lady was very, very strong there. And it, it suffered greatly a dehumanization by being turned into something which I would say is overly intellectual. And believe me, I'm a Dominican. I like intellectual things. But you get too intellectual in the wrong sense, where everything is a matter of just study. And though the study is extremely important, what it should lead you to is personal relationships. And Our Lady is certainly about that. So I think you're, you're doing a very good uh, thing to inform yourself about all this to try to discover and discern uh, what Catholicism offers, not only regarding Mary, but also uh, as far as especially universalist religion. Is that helpful for you, Jeff? It is, and I'm just wondering about the RCIA piece. You'd have to ask your priest. 
Um, a lot of times they let, you know, if they have an idea that someone's highly educated in the difficulties of theology, and certainly many Anglican priests or Episcopalian priests are quite educated in this, you don't necessarily have to go through the whole process. But that depends on the diocese and it depends on the parish and how, you know, much they want to enforce the the bureaucracy for the ordinary people. But who knows, if you went through RCIA, uh, you might be able to help the candidates too because not everybody who teaches that has a clue about what's... They're not all that deep, some of them, which is sad. Some are very deep, but some are not. So that's all. You just have to talk to your parish priest and see what he offers to you. God bless you, Jeff. We'll keep you in our prayers. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Kind of a related question here uh, from Scott in uh, the great state of New York, in Rochester. He says, doesn't the teaching of Mary's perpetual virginity cause a problem with calling St. Joseph her spouse since their marriage would have never been consummated? Yeah. Well, this is the famous problem of the Josephite marriage. And the way this has been resolved, and John Paul II also has a section where he discusses it, is that Mary and Joseph never said they never would consummate their marriage. What they said was that they remained open to divine providence, that God had told them at that point that it should not be consummated. And if he should ever change you know, his will in this and may reveal it to them, that they were ready and willing to obey God, whatever he wished of them. So they didn't preclude the possibility of consummation as a condition for marriage, which would have made their marriage invalid. What they did was is they offered up its possibility to what divine providence revealed to them, and divine providence uh, had revealed to both that they had to remain virginal. And, uh, but that didn't mean that that would always be the case. So they were uh, willing in obedience and love to give themselves to whatever uh, God wished for them. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. And we'll just wrap up this whole topic. We have uh, 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 our our friend Jeff uh, gave way to two of these emails, the, the one about the Marian issue, and then Casey writes in, and she says, I am currently... Involved in RCIA classes with my boyfriend, and she wants to know if you have any words of advice for them as a couple. Oh, well, not knowing you, it would be hard for me to give you practical <laughs> advice personally. But uh, just try to be sure you both in study the catechism. And whatever they teach in the RCIA class, which I'm sure they're trying to teach you the, the faith generally, Sometimes they omit certain important things. And, you know, you're not forbidden, in fact, you're encouraged to try to read the catechism on your own and try to make sense out of it. That's why it was produced in 1986. Some of it you won't understand without help. Some of it you will understand. And uh, I, I, that's what I would hold out to you. 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Ellie in New York City, Jerry in the great state of Texas, uh, Gary in Lexington, Kentucky, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. The number again is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And if you are outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 201 Five. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Back to the phones we go. Next stop is the Big Apple, New York City. Ellie is in New York listening to us or watching us actually on YouTube. Ellie, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi, Father. Hi. Um, So this is my question. Um, How come people think of God as two different gods? Since the one from the Old Testament seems more strict, and the one in the New Testament is more merciful. Well, this is an old error, you know, and uh, it led one heretic to maintain that there, in fact, were two different gods, and that Christianity had done away with the God of the Old Testament. But this is ridiculous. Um, Obviously, Christ's whole teaching is imbued with God as he's revealed to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And all the prophecies point to him. The reason that God seems so tough in the Old Testament is, first of all, because the people did not yet have, they could experience grace. There were saints in the Old Testament. If you want a list, look at Hebrews 11.6, or chapter 11, because they're listed there. But St. Paul says, but though these people believed and so they received grace they would believe basically so that their faith would be perfected in us in the New Testament because we see the fullness of the mystery in the second person of the Trinity and uh, God seems harsh in the Old Testament partially because remember the people are extremely materialistic Uh, when every time God gives a command, you know, the first and most important one was the one about one God. Well, they're breaking the commandment at the bottom of the mountain while he's revealing it at the top of the mountain. And the history of Israel was replete with, on the one hand, a desire for heaven and waiting for the Messiah. Yes, that's important. But on the other hand, constantly giving in to pagan religions that worship strange and sometimes really wicked gods. So it's, it's, it's God's vociferous reaction is to underline the fact that he's transcendent. But then, of course, in the redemption, the redemption is promised in Genesis 3.15. And so the uh, completion of the Old Testament is the New Testament. And they both have to go together. 
can't understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old Testament. And so in Christ, we have God made visible and so are caught up in love of the God we cannot see. Now, of course, the Jews were commanded to love God. You know, that's the first and most important of the commandments and their neighbor as themselves. But because of a loss of grace, it became hard for them to do that with any kind of satisfaction. Though there were pious and devout people who lived under the old law. So, yes, it's a problem because they seem, in a sense, different. But they're not. One is the fulfillment of the movement and promise of the other. Thanks, Ellie. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next stop is Lexington, Kentucky. Gary is in the Commonwealth of Kentucky listening on the EWTN app. Gary, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Thank you. Father Brian, I have yes. a question about uh, Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth. This is Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, where he stands up to read, and the scroll of Isaiah is handed to him, and it says he found these verses in front of him. Does that mean that when he was handed the scroll, it was those were the verses that were there, and he read those automatically, or does it mean that he was handed the scroll and he went to find these verses because that's what he wanted to reveal to the people in the synagogue that day. What does it mean when he found those verses? Well, frankly, I have no idea, number one, because I'm not familiar with that translation of the text. Um, you know, that's an English translation. And whatever the original text is, I'm not sure it says that. My impression was always that uh, he just read what was there the text for the day and then he applied it to himself that was always my impression but um, I'm not sure anyone has a strong opinion about that one way or the other the important thing is that the Old Testament text is um, uh, fulfilled in him and it's that that infuriates the people in Nazareth because they think he's black blaspheming they also don't like, as you remember, the uh, fact that he performed all these miracles at other places, but he didn't find too much faith in his home. But that, of course, is fulfilling of a prophecy, too, a prophet's without honor in his own native place. And you remember that at least on one occasion, they tried to kill him by throwing him over the brow of the hill on which the town is based, built. And it just as God protected him by his grace, then he passed through their midst and walked away. But as for what that means, um, I have no idea. Thanks, Gary. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls. Uh, we head next to East Texas. Jerry is in the Republic of Texas listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jerry, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Hello, Father. Hello, Jerry. Uh, my comment or question or both about the Holy Mother is I'm 71 years old right now. My, my mother handed me a set of books many years ago called uh, The City of God or The Mystical City of God. Mary Greta. Yeah, Mary yeah. Greta. Yeah. She told me that you 
probably should be at least 60 years old before you read this. Mm. You know, which, of course, you know, piqued my interest. But my question, because that book which tells about the life of Mary, she right. had the, the sister of Grace had interlocutions from God saying right. she about has to tell the story. It was time for the world to hear about, you know, uh, Mary. Okay, uh, and this, the book had been imprinted by bishops and popes at that time and all that. And this woman became very well known for this. Now, she tells the story of Mary from her, is it her Immaculate Conception at the gates with Joachim and Elizabeth, her parents, all the way up to her childhood, working in the temple, and uh, all the things that she faced to her spouse with with Joseph, and the details are a little different than we were commonly taught by the church. Uh, Not much, but, you know, all within, within the scope of things. But my question is this, because it's such a great book, and it tells you everything you need to know about Mary, how long she lived, you know, uh, how she lived, you know, what she did with Jesus, and, and the whole world, and what she did... So, what's your question? ...with the church after Jesus died, and for the next 30 years or so, while they uh, formed the church. My question is, why aren't we taught this or about her when we're young? And other uh, uh, people talking, uh, they don't even talk about her. This or why? Uh, Go ahead. Well, the reason is because it's not doctrinally defined. I mean, no one knows if that's true or not. This is a woman's private revelations, and private revelations are only matters of human faith. And when the church examines them, they say things like. Well, this won't destroy your faith, but we're not sure this happened. And, of course, the more detailed it gets, the less sure we are it happened. So it's very dangerous to uh, govern your faith or try to require others who may not be as uh, enthusiastic about Mary of Agreda as you and some of the other people are to try to force them to read this as though it was the catechism because it's not. Uh, it might be very helpful to you and for others for their edification, but that, again, doesn't mean it actually happened. So and the church never says it actually happened. What they said was that reading this book will not uh, destroy your faith. So you're perfectly free to do that or not. This is an example of freedom in Catholicism. So you're free to read that and enjoy that, but not to impose it on other people because it's not a matter of the creed. And there's no reason, therefore, for it to be... Well, my goodness, children today don't even understand the catechism that I was taught as a child. How are they going to get into all these you know, details of the life of Mary? So I think that uh, we have to real work on the more important and certain central mysteries. And if people want to read things like the revelations of Mary of Agreda, that is very nice, and I would encourage them to enjoy it. But but don't um, think that it's settled Catholic doctrine. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Dominic is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, watching EWTN television today. Dominic, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Hey, Dominic. Hi, Father. Hey, how are you? Good. 
I have a quick question. My uh, nephew, who I was a god godfather to, died uh, with uh, COVID. Yes. Hold on a minute. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Uh, does he have a right for a mask if he gets communicate uh, 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 cremated? Oh, he died with COVID. Well, of course yeah, he does. Yeah, he died with COVID. And he, he, he's, why wouldn't he have a right to a mass? I mean, it's not what? evil. Well, why wouldn't he? It's not evil. It's a disease. It'd be like dying from any other disease. I think he's more referring to the cremation than the disease. Oh, the cremation? Well, the church permits cremation now, provided that it's not for a religious motive. Because Eastern religions think that you have to destroy the body in order to set the soul free. Uh, we don't believe that. The body's not evil. In fact, you could even bless the body before you cremate it. But a cremation, is, is a, the church recognizes it, provided it's not for a religious motive. Of course he can be, have a mass. Mm -hmm. um, we got an email from Ahmad, and he says, Can you explain if early church fathers in the first and second centuries believed that Rome had supremacy over the whole church? Oh, yes, I certainly can. Um, Ignatius of Antioch talks about this. Rome is the mother of all the churches. And uh, I believe Clement of Rome does too. And they were almost contemporaries with the apostles. So, uh, yeah, the, the idea of Roman primacy is of long duration. And the reason is partially because Peter was the head of the apostles. And he was the first bishop of Rome. So it's not so much a matter of the physical city because it was a large city in the capital of the Roman Empire. It's a matter of the fact that Peter was its first bishop. Oh, yeah, there's there's clear reference to Roman primacy in uh, several of the documents of the ancient fathers. You may remember that it was really the ancient fathers that led Cardinal Newman to Rome, <laughs> finally. <laughs> Uh, I, I know it seems strange. Now, I'm not saying it has all the pomp and circumstance of the Vatican and all those things, but certainly it was looked upon as the mother of all the churches. Yeah. Uh, Maria wants to know if you have any advice for people who suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder or other mental illnesses. Well, uh, yes, but I'm not sure I can summarize it in five minutes. <laughs> it is, after all, a complicated condition. <laughs> Um, look, I'm going to be writing a book for EWTN on the ideas of Dr. Conrad Bars, who had a very oh, interesting opinion about this. And his opinion was that Freudian psychology looks upon obsessive compulsion as caused by a conflict between what we perceive the moral law to be and our passions. And so the best way to resolve it is to do away with the moral law, basically. Uh, no, we don't believe that. In our passions, there are two different desiring faculties. One which enjoys the good as such. The other enjoys the good as difficult to obtain or is utilitarian. What happens with some people is that they're educated in such a way about certain things. Sex is certainly one of them. 
where they're taught to fear it, it in general, not sexual sin, but the feeling. Well, the feeling naturally arises in puberty. So what's the natural response to something you consider to be evil? You are so afraid that you try to keep it from entering into your character because you don't want to deal with it. Now, for many people, this isn't a serious problem. But for some, the fear is so powerful that you actually block it out of your consciousness. Well, when it's blocked out of your consciousness, your moral part, you know, your intellect and will can't deal with it and integrate it into your personality, which normally would happen when a person's a teenager. Since it can't be integrated, it still exercises pressure. It never goes away. And it will burst out in strange ways. So you have a person who's excessively afraid of sexual pleasure and yet acts out all the time and can't seem to control it or is promiscuous uh, and they don't understand why. So the obsessive compulsive nature comes in the fact that the fear or sometimes it's anger, which would be your, you know, the fact that you have a very strong personality, you um, just uh, slap it down and bury it alive. It needs to be uncovered. Now, Freudian uh, you know, analysis, psychoanalysis, is one way to do this about certain things, but not about everything. And the reason it fails is because it's not about everything. Uh, for many people, what they need to do is learn to trust someone else to tell them the truth about these inclinations. Because only when they trust does the fear or anger begin to subside. And then what you've been repressing inside, but jumped out to obsess over it, slowly comes to the surface. And even though it may cause some difficulty for a little while, you then begin to try to integrate it like a teenager would in a shorter, you know, but you, because you're an adult, you can do it in a shorter period of time. But still, a, a flawless explanation of this is involved. And that means that Catholic doctrine about this. So we're not freed from the moral law. We're freed for the moral law. Obsessive compulsive behavior is lawless. And what we need to do is try to reintegrate the law into our personality but in a true sense, not a false sense. Now, I tried five minutes to that's, explain that's, this. That's pretty pretty good in five minutes. Um, <laughs> eight three three. Look forward to that book. Are you are you working on the book now? Yes, we're just beginning the first chapter. Right? Have you uh, have you uh, worked with his daughter Suzanne at all on this or no? Uh, no, I know her. Um, I, I mean, I should say I know of her. Hmm. I've corresponded with her mother many years ago. Hmm. But one of the problems that all of the people that follow Dr. Barr's ideas have is that they're all based on Thomistic psychology. And many of them don't understand the Thomistic psychology underneath it. And that needs to be more clearly explained, I think. Yeah. We'll head back to the Republic of Texas. David is listening on Guadalupe Radio. David, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, David. Hello, Father Milady. I like Good that. Day. Republic of Texas. Yes. Let me ask you a question about how the 
church feels about vasectomy and how you would feel about when I was young, I got a vasectomy as a young, dumb kid, but now it's too late. Okay. Uh, first of all, you know, it is birth control. So it's a mortal sin. Uh, I had to explain this to two buddies of mine who were both humongous former sheriffs in California. And <laughs> what was very interesting is when I explained this to them, because one of them was a very devout Catholic, the other one in the return of the church, they said, you're kidding. And I said, well, look, can you have any children? No. Well, then it's contraceptive, right? Oh. <laughs> well, anyway, when I, we finished our conversation, one of them, they were brothers, and one left and the other one stayed, and he said to me, you know, Father, deep down we knew it was wrong, but we wouldn't admit it to ourselves. Okay, that's number one. Number two, uh, the church is hoping, because doctors are experimenting with this, that eventually there'll be an inexpensive and easy way to reverse vasectomy. I don't think that it's attained yet, uh, but again, there could be an argument about that. And frankly, I'm not really an expert on me medical surgeries enough to make a judgment about it personally. But the church is hoping that for those people who are like you, who did this kind of in ignorance and now wish it were different, that there would be a surgery of some kind that would be inexpensive and not too painful and not too intrusive that would allow it to be reversed. Because really, if, you're, if it's possible to reverse, and I mean not just possible, possible with a capital P, but if it's possible in a, a way that isn't too intrusive, that it should be reversed. Thank you, David. We will keep you in our prayers as well. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out Joan Lewis and Vatican Insider Saturday at both 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So all of you early birds and night owls, we've got a time for each one of you. Again, Joan Lewis, Vatican Insider, Saturday, 5 a.m., and repeats again at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Uh, Sean would like to know if recreational marijuana is allowed according to Catholic morality. No. The answer is no. <laughs> uh, but what if look. it's legal, Father? The answer is still no. Uh, if you are putting this foreign substance in your body, and I know they think they, uh, the, whole, the whole myth, because I've been fighting this since the 70s with teenagers. <laughs> um, you know, if, uh, all you have to do is have one bad trip and your mind is destroyed for your life. We had a brother whose, whose cousin had one bad trip at 19. He never recovered intellectually. Um, I, it's not the same as alcohol. For one thing, it takes a long time to get drunk. And your body has a tendency to reject it if it's too much, which is not the case with marijuana. So recreational marijuana 
is putting a foreign substance in your body that is very dangerous and you're risking quite a lot to do it. And of course, as you know, I know people deny this, but I don't think it's all that uncommon. It's the doorway to the next thing because it really is addictive. So, no. <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> uh, we're running down to the end of the program here, but just file that number away for next time. It's 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Mark is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And very quickly, Mark, just a couple minutes left with Father Milady. What's your question? Well, I think... Uh, I think that he was wondering if uh, his remains or if anyone's remains have to be buried in a plot or can they remain somewhat mobile? You mean like on your mantelpiece? Yeah, or I, in your car, or I don't know what no, he's getting no, at exactly, no, no. but he wanted it to look, be mobile. The body, look, the body is a holy thing. It participated in your moral life. It was through the body that you did good. To other people the body therefore has to be respected and the respect for the body demands that it be uh, at least uh, buried or if you want to be you know be buried at sea the, the ashes that's okay but you can't scatter your ashes that's disrespectful it has to be in an urn, sealed, and dropped. In well, and, I say, and our screener says that he was his concern was, what if his kids move away and they're not near where he was buried anymore? No. That happens to a lot of us. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, you can, of course, disinter, especially, I would imagine, the urns and move into another cemetery near you. Father, would you but, leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Dominican Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Back at it tomorrow as we talk theology with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together on EWTN's Open Line Friday, have a great evening and God bless.